0: We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy and ideas that may offend some listeners.
1: So Kai, what are we doing this week? Well, we're still away on holidays. We are well into our longitudinal auto research on leisure time, so we're not recording a regular episode.
2: We talk a lot on The Future this week about robots and algorithms, machine learning, automation...
1: They're all meant to come and make our lives easier, right?
2: But turns out, they don't. AI is coming to make your work harder.
1: But speaking of automation, we do have something to tide you over until season 11 starts up. And
2: that's our new podcast series, and it's actually very good. If we may say so ourselves,
1: it's called The Unlearned Project, and it's our new series about changing common sense.
2: And it's quite a different show to the future this week, where, you know, we sit down and banter every week. This one is about those topics, ideas, concepts, where the world has changed without us even noticing.
1: You might have already heard our episode on unlearning computers. We do have another one for you today, another episode from our new series, this time about unlearning automation. Enjoy.
3: Oxford University predicts nearly half of all jobs will disappear within the next 25 years.
2: For the first time in history,
4: Workers will be able to be human. Automating some of the grunt work so that we can be more efficient. Robots will steal your job, but that's okay.
1: (laughs) But that's okay. That's okay. That's what we hear all the time. Automation will reduce the amount of work that we have. It will lead to some job losses. But at least what we're going to be left with is of higher quality. The creative, fun, interesting work where we all get to use our imagination. But that is the
2: common wisdom, right, that underpins automation. And to be fair, like historically, that has always been the case. If you think about farming, manufacturing, mining, uh, robots and automation have always helped us, right? Made work less strenuous, less dangerous, repetitive, difficult, really helped with the physically taxing work. Some jobs will go, but at least what's left is better.
1: Yeah, but is it? I mean, <laughs> I mean really, actually, exactly. is it? Because turns out with AI, this is no longer true. I mean, cognitive automation leaves us worse off. And in many cases with AI, the quality of the work that's left really goes
2: down. Yeah, what's left is more difficult. Exactly. AI makes our work harder. It's definitely different this time around, and we're going to figure out what's going on and what we can do about it.
1: So on this episode of The Unlearned Project, we'll hear about the effects of automation and how work at tech companies, for example, can become tedious and unpleasant as employees are left wrestling with only difficult decisions all day long, which can come as a real surprise. Like, all of a sudden... Suddenly,
5: you know, somebody says they like, oh yeah, I guess the robot is getting to approve all the good projects. And then people just kind of sit there, you know, drinking their coffee, and they're like, that's funny.
2: We will also hear from rideshare drivers who have a really hard time relating to their algorithmic managers.
6: You realize, in reality, you're working with an algorithm, and you're trying to find favor with that algorithm, and you realize you don't actually find favor with that algorithm.
1: And we'll hear from airline pilots who now require much more training and experience, not less, to fly highly automated planes.
3: Rather than look at reduced training requirements when introducing new automated systems, but actually more training requirements with automated systems.
2: And we'll talk about lawyers who no longer do as much of the kind of document based work that used to be a key training ground for them.
7: It's one of those things that I worry about for junior lawyers, so, you know, and people who are coming through the profession now.
1: So on this episode, we're looking at why automation and artificial intelligence will often make work more difficult, more tedious, stressful, and
2: overall less enjoyable. Which runs counter to the common wisdom that's held true for physical automation since the industrial revolution. We'll look at the impact of what's called
1: cognitive automation and what to do about it. AI is coming to make your job much much harder. Information request 5, five 12, change of course. i three, 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 I'm Sandra Peter. I'm Kai Rima. Welcome to the Unlearn Project.
8: Economists are predicting that 47% of all jobs across the world are going to be stolen by artificial intelligence, robots. I really
3: like the idea of automating some of the grunt work so that we can be more efficient. And then as a creative
2: team, that sort of will free us up to solve bigger problems.
4: Robots will steal your job, but that's okay. And it can be more than okay. It can be marvelous. We will not need to care about processes or numbers. We will just focus on being human.
1: So yeah, automation and AI are everywhere. And that's pretty much how it gets talked about. The robots are coming for our jobs. There will be less work available. But at least we'll get to do all the fun
2: stuff, the creative,
1: imaginative
2: work. So when we came across this story at Kickstarter a couple of years ago, it left us really puzzled. They were automating clear-cut, repetitive parts of people's jobs. But people seemed to be left with only the difficult, challenging, often frustrating work. We were like, hang on, wasn't AI going to make all our jobs easier? This was so interesting, we started researching this, and turns out AI really does make our jobs harder. The story in this episode is really the story
1: of how we started the Unlearn project in the first place. And it all kicked off with Kickstarter. And do people know what Kickstarter is? Probably. So just in case... It's this tech company, right? Yeah, this tech company that started back in 2009. And people would come to this crowdfunding platform with wild ideas. And then Kickstarter staff would get to decide which projects could ask for money from the public.
5: This idea of fans directly supporting creators. Kickstarter was just, to me, it was like this really elegant way of creating culture.
2: So you actually spoke to someone who was there from the very beginning. My
5: name is Fred Benenson. I'm currently starting a company. So you could call me the founder and CEO of Breadwinner. And before that, I was the VP of data at Kickstarter. And I was there for six and a half years as the second employee.
1: Not only that, but Fred also automated all the stuff at kickstarter but we'll we'll come to that so kickstarter is this tool for artists designers makers musicians and creative people and it's just for creative projects
9: This is a Kickstarter campaign video. So, the idea is this I'm writing a book, a feature film, stop motion animations, sci fi music video album. I hope to make something strange and unique for you to enjoy. Bach wrote the Goldberg variation. Cards Against Humanity is a party game for the horrible people. After months of collaborating with our community, our team is back with a streamlined, everyday carry backpack.
2: Ha! I actually backed this project. I got this backpack. No, not the not the backpack. Awesome. We know all about the backpack. <laughs> Shame this is a podcast because I would show it to you. It is the best backpack. Yeah, I know. But back- so when I saw this in twenty nineteen, I thought This is really cool. This is the perfect backpack. And I backed it straight away.
1: But back to our story. So Kickstarter has this all or nothing model that allows creators to choose a funding goal and set the number of days to reach that goal. And then people like you, Kai, come and back the project with money. The last piece of the
0: puzzle is going to be you. We cannot do this without you. We can't.
1: If you
3: back this Kickstarter project, you will be cool and everybody will like you.
2: And again, shame this is a podcast because this is such a cool backpack. You've got this laptop compartment, iPad, a padded compartment for my headphones. But back to our story and back
1: to Fred, who also remembers how the team at Kickstarter were super excited in those early days as fun projects were launching on the website.
5: You'd kind of be like holding out for it and excited for it to launch. And especially if you had a personal connection to the creators, you'd really be rooting for them.
1: And Fred recalls how at that time...
5: We had some pretty exciting moments and at that time the only way to get a Kickstarter project on the site and live was to like basically write in can I use Kickstarter and we would just flag your account and say okay you're a creator now Um, and then people would kind of be off to the races. And some of those projects were really surprising like out of left field style hits that were really amazing and, and wonderful to watch it really change people's lives you know.
1: People at Kickstarter really had a blast. It
5: was kind of a cool job, right? This job was kind of seen as like a a bit of an ambassador to the Kickstarter brand.
1: And people really got a lot of satisfaction out of their job approving
2: some of these cool projects. And so the site grew very quickly.
5: Kickstarter was growing incredibly.
2: Like really, really fast. We looked it up. They went from approving less than 200 projects a month in August 2009 to over 2,000 a month in April 2011. And by the beginning of March 2014, Kickstarter had passed $1 billion in pledges to creative projects.
1: And again, shame this is a podcast, because here is where we would show you these hockey stick graphs. They started with three
2: projects and went on to $1 billion in pledges. It's like those charts every startup dreams about, starting flat and they really shoot up.
5: But it was also kind of teetering on the edge of falling apart because of the volume. You know, we were getting more and more popular and more and more projects were coming online and it was becoming like taxing for the team. So fast forward a year or two.
1: That was when it all exploded.
5: I don't think anybody could have ever really predicted how big that company would become.
1: These people were there for hours, working nights and weekends, reviewing projects for the website. And that team was
5: getting overwhelmed.
1: And Fred told me how holiday weekends were especially difficult for the team, as the queue would back up with hundreds of worthy projects.
5: And so this is all kind of reaching a a boil.
1: And so Fred oversaw the development of an automated system to help with the influx of projects.
5: And I tried to build an algorithm.
1: He built... Quite a few algorithms, actually.
5: And I just got obsessed with this problem.
1: The idea was to develop an automated system that would consider each project's stated purpose, its creator's past record of success and other factors,
2: and fast-track the most promising ones. So it was really straightforward, right? Projects that scored the highest would gain approval to launch without any human intervention. Yeah, and it worked.
5: And so I built that like robot that was like working on the weekend.
2: <laughs> it worked
1: really well.
5: We could probably take 40 or 50 percent of this team's work off their plate.
1: Fred and his team even made sure that the experience was still best for the creators.
5: And so we built it so that the robot would never reject people. It would only send them for human review. And it was only allowed to accept
1: projects.
2: This should have been great, right? You'd really think so, right?
1: But turns out, not quite.
5: I don't think we totally realized that that very kind of subtle like, product decision meant that the robot would just pick off all the best
1: projects. And it led to a dramatic drop in the average quality of projects that human reviewers would see.
5: The effective end result was that the robot was saying yes to, to all the good projects and the human team that was working on it or had, had been working kind of in the trenches looking at all the projects were suddenly only seeing the projects that the robot didn't think passed muster.
2: So what Fred's really talking about is that the robot was picking off all the projects that were the easiest to analyze. Yeah. So what was left
1: for human reviewers were the projects with the muddy scores, particularly the ones where the ideas really tested the limits of Kickstarter's guidelines.
5: And so it really changed the the kind of like feeling on that team.
1: The job was suddenly not as enjoyable. These people were now only seeing
5: like the difficult edge cases where they're like, I don't know, this person seems like really fine, but like the project feels really off.
1: Or like really dreary projects like impractically heavy duvets or like questionable anime games or fundraising for medical issues. So ones that are outside the guidelines. Yeah, remember, they're only funding creative projects. So now there's no more easy wins, projects that the team can easily see take off.
5: They were looking at previously the full spectrum, you know, everyone who came through the front door and they got to see all the good and all the bad. Just suddenly they were only looking at like the bottom half, according to a
1: robot. All of this really caught people by surprise. Like it, it caught us by surprise. It did catch
2: us by surprise, totally.
5: We Suddenly, you know, somebody says, "We're like, oh yeah, I guess the robot is getting to approve all the good projects, and then people just going kind to of sit there, you know, drinking their coffee and be like, that's
4: funny.
1: Because remember, no one is thinking about it because automation was always meant to make our work easier and
2: more enjoyable. Exactly. Like with the physical stuff, farming, manufacturing, mining, robots and automation really help, right? They help with the heavy, the difficult, the dangerous, the physically taxing stuff.
1: And we imported this assumption into cognitive automation.
2: So while we're prepared for, robots are coming for Phil in accounting… Yeah, I remember that headline, it was in the New York Times. Yeah, but we aren't quite prepared for poor old Phil to be a whole lot more miserable in the process.
1: Again, because the assumption going in is that what is left for us will be better, will be of higher value, creative, imaginative, inspiring…
2: Yeah, but it's not. It might be higher value, but it's also ambiguous, difficult, often stressful.
1: So it turns out we must unlearn
2: automation.
1: Cognitive automation is different. It often does make our work harder. And that's because unlike when we automate physical work, cognitive automation goes for the easy part.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Physically strenuous tasks are relatively easy to automate, right? Lifting heavy objects, grinding things down, cutting stuff. While on the other hand, tasks that are relatively easy for people, like handling delicate objects and picking flowers or blueberries, they're much harder to automate. In cognitive automation, most
1: often, it's the other way around. We can automate easy routine tasks that we understand well, but algorithms then leave the hard and demanding stuff for the human workers.
2: Yeah, and doing only the hard and demanding work, no matter how creative, that's not great. It's not great. We were so puzzled by what had happened at Kickstarter that we started looking around at other industries to see if similar things were happening in other places as well.
1: And we found evidence of it in different forms in many industries. Health, the gig economy, the airline industry, even the legal profession.
2: Yeah, the creation of automated legal services, right? Simple things such as drafting a contract, setting up a will or dispute resolution, have really been shaking up the legal profession. There's been a lot of interest, experimentation, and a lot of promise for automation.
7: To provide... Better access to justice for populations where probably a majority of the Australian population would consider that they do not have the money to hire a lawyer, where they have a dispute. That's our colleague from across campus, well, really across the road, Professor Kim Weatherall. My name, maybe, Kimberly Weatherall from the University of Sydney Law School. I wear too many hats, so there's too many titles. So, Professor of Law, I specialise in questions around the regulation of technology. I'm also a researcher with the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society.
1: Kim has a keen interest in and does research on algorithms and automation in the legal profession.
7: I'm speaking from talking to lots of lawyers, talking to lots of students, you know, following the legal tech and the discussion as it's occurring in the literature. So on the one hand, automating
1: services at the front end of the legal profession really has the potential to... To give more people access to justice. Artificial intelligence or machine learning can provide certain legal services much more readily at a much lower cost, like checking or creating simple legal documents like contracts.
2: And also quite well, right? Uh, I remember a study by academics from Stanford, Duke, and Southern California law schools that found AI could actually do it better than humans. And much faster, right? 26 seconds where humans would on average take 92 minutes.
1: So on the one hand, AI promises to make accessible, simple legal services at scale. On the other hand, automation is also used to do away with a lot of the repetitive and tedious work that lawyers especially junior ones have to do things like
2: like document discovery yeah right?
7: like document discovery if you're involved in a big litigation you have to go and look back over all the documents about that dispute and this can be hundreds of thousands of pages millions of pages in a really big piece of litigation and in the past, this would have been done by the most junior lawyers. You would have quite literally put them in a room with boxes of documents and had them there with their highlighters and their sticky notes, picking out what were the relevant documents that needed to be looked at further by someone higher up the chain.
1: And
2: that work is not the most fun job, right? <laughs> no, it's not. It's a bit like a Kickstarter before they automate it, having to go through all those projects after a long weekend.
7: Yeah, exactly. So as a junior lawyer sitting in a sometimes windowless room for hours and hours and weeks and weeks just going through documents, A, it's not very interesting. It's really not very interesting work. Um, B, it is easy to get tired. It's easy to get bored. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to miss things.
2: That really doesn't sound like much fun. And it is a lot of work right? And that's why many companies are looking at machine learning algorithms for pattern recognition. You can train these algorithms with millions of documents like case files or legal briefs to flag the kind of stuff that lawyers might need for a court case, for example.
1: So document discovery is at least partially being automated.
2: And you could argue that this is actually a good thing, right? It will save a lot of time and it saves the client's money.
1: Didn't J.P. Morgan already in 2017 announce that he was using some software called Contract Intelligence or yeah, COIN? Yeah, COIN, right? Which could in seconds perform document review tasks that took their legal aids something like 360,000
2: yeah. hours. A lot of time. So all around, a good thing. But is it? Well, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, actually, it creates a big problem for junior lawyers, but also for the profession as a whole.
7: No, firstly, there's a question of whether you get the job, because quite simply, they just don't need as many people to do that work, maybe as you would have expected.
2: So the robots are coming for us. Some jobs will be lost because of automation. Yeah, but the work itself is also changing. So Kim points out that, first of all, there'll be a loss in the social aspects of work.
7: If you're interacting with a screen and a program as opposed to a team of people, you do lose something you know, you lose a degree of camaraderie or collegiality. Um, that used to be a really big part of the job. And that's not all, right? There's
1: a more important question.
7: How do you develop the level of expertise if you're not like just having to read hundreds of cases? If in fact, you know, this program is doing a certain amount of the narrowing of the cases, you're still reading cases, but you're not reading all of them. You're not doing the same degree of work maybe that you did before. So this discovery
1: work might have been tedious, laborious and at times boring.
7: Yeah, going over
2: stacks of dusty law books and case files.
1: But this grunt work is typically a key training ground because it exposes first-year lawyers to lots and lots of
7: documents and legal material. And as Kim says, there's no better way to understand the business of your clients than to have to read every document that they produced on, on a dispute over the course of, you know, multiple months. No no better way to understand how contracts are put together and what goes wrong in contracts than seeing it litigated at the end, you know, seeing how a contract was put together by looking back over the documents. Where did that, where did that term in that contract come from? You sort of look back behind that and, and then you work out a... Uh, and that's why it's gone horribly wrong, or no better way to understand how to put a contract together than to read hundreds and hundreds of them. (laughs) This is where you get your expertise. It's one of those things that I worry about for junior lawyers, you know, and people who are coming through the profession now.
1: And that creates a huge problem for career progression when large chunks of a lawyer's work become automated.
2: McKinsey actually predicted back in 2019 that about 23% of a lawyer's time could be automated. And that's a lot, right? Yeah, and if lots of these tasks fall away, I mean, how do you train junior lawyers, right? How will they learn? As always with automation, lawyers might be able to concentrate on those higher value tasks, the more complicated stuff. But they do have to develop those skills in the first place. And
7: as Kim says, that's done by practicing, by spending the time. And going and reading hundreds of those cases or reading hundreds of those contracts brings a degree of, I want to say expertise, but I also want to say wisdom (laughs) that I think is going to be hard to replicate at a speed or without just those years of thinking, reading, putting stuff together, getting feedback on it from your partner. So it's really
1: about the lack of exposure to these many documents.
2: Yeah, but it's also about missing out on that apprenticeship that you get from working with senior colleagues on a team.
7: Obviously. Um, you, do, you learn a lot from other, other team members and you learn a lot from the senior associate who might be supervising that particular task.
1: And that's really the unexpected counterintuitive effect of automating work in the legal profession.
2: So when we automate the tedious stuff, the boring tasks, which is a good idea from an economic and efficiency point of view, we do make it harder to learn certain skills, like building really good arguments from studying loads and loads of documents. So again, we need to unlearn the common wisdom
1: that automation will make work easier. In this case, because junior lawyers lose the apprenticeship aspects that have now been automated. Okay, so we discussed Kickstarter
9: and the law profession.
1: But then we found even more places where automation makes work harder in quite counterintuitive ways.
9: Uber and other kind of gig economy platforms are basically the first time in history that large swaths of the economy can basically kind of, uh, you know, tap their smartphone and turn on work. That's a tremendous change and I think something that is potentially revolutionary and that we don't fully understand the implications of yet.
1: That's Keith Chen and he used to be the head of economic research at Uber.
9: My name is Keith Chen. Uh, I'm a behavioral economist and a professor of Strategy and Economics at the UCLA Anderson School of Management.
1: And Keith and I spoke at UCLA during his lunch break, teaching in the University of Sydney's Global Executive MBA program.
2: And Keith designed some of the original algorithms, right, that are used to match and manage rides on the Uber platform. He also taught monkeys how to use money, but that's a whole other episode. So, if you've been living under a rock, Uber is a ride-sharing service, right, like a taxi service. And you take Ubers to work every day, right? Every day, except during COVID lockdowns. Yeah, and so while Uber is set to disrupt the taxi industry, that's how it's often discussed, it did actually bring big changes to how work is organized.
1: But as you can imagine, a platform the scale of Uber can only work with automation. And much like Kickstarter, this story of automation starts with really good intentions.
9: Uber as a platform only really makes money when drivers make money. And a lot of what my team at Uber tried to do was to um, help drivers make as much money as possible in as short a time as possible. You know, kind of maximize their kind of hourly earnings, hopefully spend more time on the platform and make both themselves and Uber more money.
1: So for people who want to earn money by driving, Uber has a really attractive offer.
6: Choosing to work with Uber in the first place is about the flexibility that I can just choose my own hours, I can choose 12 minutes, or I can choose to work 12 hours.
2: That is Michael, and Michael drives for the platform.
6: With Uber now for three years.
1: And researchers who have spoken to lots more drivers report the same.
8: They feel that there's a lot of autonomy, right? So they can log into the app whenever they want to, whenever they please do.
0: For the workers, I think the, the main Positive aspects relates to the flexibility, uh, the ability to take on extra work on top of some other work.
2: That's Mareike Mühlmann and Ola Henvredson, who together did an elaborate study on how Uber drivers experience their work for the platform.
8: My name is Mareike Mühlmann, I'm assistant professor at Bentley University.
0: So my name is Ola Henvredson. I'm a professor of business technology at Miami Herbert Business School.
2: So Marike, Ola and their team looked at the effects of what is now known as algorithmic management.
0: Algorithmic management is really the large scale collection of use of data uh, to develop and improve algorithms that can carry out coordination and control functions.
1: So the algorithm that Keith Chen and his team created performed the kind of work that in many businesses is done by managers.
8: Uber is really using uh, this app to manage um, millions of remote drivers. And there
1: are two main things that are being automated here.
8: On the one hand, Uber is a marketplace matching drivers to customers and uses just algorithms to do that very efficiently. And on the other hand, we find that the algorithms are also controlling drivers very heavily, right? They use algorithms to monitor and control platform workers. So
1: for Uber customers like me, it's really important that we find the driver
2: quickly and that we get a good price. Yeah, and the Uber app takes care of this, right? But it also manages the workers. And it is this algorithmic management, the fact that workers have an algorithm as their boss that creates... You know,
0: tensions when it comes to the feeling of being autonomous on the one hand and
6: feeling very highly controlled on the other hand. You realize... In reality, you're working with an algorithm and you're trying to find favor with that algorithm and you realize you don't actually find favor with that algorithm.
2: That's Michael again, the Uber driver.
6: I'd like to say I'm collaborating with it, but I know it's attempting to manage me to make profit for the company.
2: So in the case of Uber, what has been automated is not the work itself, the driving, but the management, right? What would normally be done by middle managers. As
1: with all cognitive automation, it's always partial. So some parts can be automated really well. Like work allocation. Yeah, like finding the right drivers for someone like me who wants a ride. But the other parts can be automated less well. If you think of the app as being your manager, the automated manager can be quite inflexible.
0: Sometimes it felt very frustrated by the fact that, uh, you know, the the app suggested certain routes when they felt that they had a better uh, sense of the uh, of the area themselves.
1: What happens at Uber also happens
10: at other gig platforms around the world. This is Mr. Wei. Yeah. He drives for Didi in Shanghai. Mr. Wei explains how he's at the mercy of the ad.
6: Uh,
7: That he's
10: working for a machine that allows him very little
7: flexibility in how he drives
10: especially when the traffic is really bad there is a real issue where he can't get to a customer fast enough customers or passengers are allowed to cancel but he's the one who gets blamed by the algorithm Mm.
6: Mm.
10: Mm. Mm. and when too many customers cancel his account is blocked for hours he says the app works for the customer it is 95% on the customer's side sometimes the only autonomy he has is to switch the app off so that the algorithm can't tell him what to do anymore
8: So they really feel tightly controlled. They feel that they are really supervised by the platform. The platform is constantly tracking their data, right? So their GPS location, how fast they drive. So they felt very frustrated, right? So they felt supervised. And the algorithm
1: will nudge drivers to
8: take on more work.
6: Yeah, so it's always on about making money, obviously, for the business. If you drove this route, you may pick up more customers.
1: But it can also nudge drivers to make certain rides that they don't really want to make.
8: Uber kind of made them behave in a desired way that is beneficial to the company, but not to the rider by forcing them to take these rides.
2: So drivers sometimes have this feeling of not really being in control. Of how they do their work and they often don't quite know why their algorithmic manager would make certain decisions.
4: One of the sort of main things that stood out from our research is that workers experience algorithmic management, they try and make sense of it, but they actually don't fully understand how it operates.
2: That's our colleague down the hallway, Alex Fain, who has done a lot of research into gig workers in food delivery
4: such as Uber Eats and Deliveroo. So, my name is Alex Vane from the University of Sydney Business School. I'm a lecturer in the discipline of work and organisational studies.
2: And Alex and his colleagues have found that geek workers are often frustrated because workers
4: often don't get it. Workers often don't have a very precise understanding of how these systems operate. But they would always try to figure out how these algorithms work because... If workers actually had a better understanding of how these systems operated, they could more efficiently engage with them so some have theories. I need to wait at a particular location, at least a hundred meters away from the restaurant, because if I'm too close by congregating with other workers, I might not get picked.
1: But it's often impossible for drivers like Michael to figure out how the algorithm makes decisions.
6: Sometimes I think about, I wonder how these algorithms are working. And I wonder if I can find any advantage inside this algorithm just by tapping into it in an algorithmic way. Uh, no, No real success on that.
2: So workers really struggle because the decisions made by algorithmic managers are often intransparent. Drivers don't receive any explanations.
8: It was just like a huge black box for the drivers and really hard for them to understand what was going on. So algorithms make decisions that sometimes
1: just don't make sense to the workers, and that makes their life harder and more stressful.
2: Yeah, especially when a decision threatens their livelihood, right? When their performance is assessed by the algorithm. And that can have severe consequences, as Ola explains.
0: Where perhaps some problem that is relates to Uber rather than themselves, uh, you know, will still reflecting their customer reviews. And since those reviews are so important in order not to be banned from the platform, it is a constant worry.
2: So the heart of the matter here are those reviews that drivers or delivery workers receive from their customers.
1: And Michael says receiving a bad review and not knowing why can leave some of his fellow drivers quite distressed.
6: The elderly drivers who are have had a low rating, and they will just ponder on that for three, four, five days until they can get past that. So in that sense, their well-being is not being served very well.
1: And all those individual customer reviews do add up. Taken together, they make up a driver's rating as a score from one to five.
4: So everyone's familiar with these uh, five-star rating systems. And so the inputs in these rating systems determine the Um, priority that these workers get in terms of task allocation, but also to what extent they have ongoing access on these platforms to work opportunities. And if a driver's
1: rating falls below a certain threshold, there can be severe consequences.
4: What we see in certain platforms that depending on these performance ratings, accounts are deactivated or blocked, workers have to undertake further training.
2: And so as a driver, what do you do then when you feel that you've been treated wrongly? Normally, you'd go and take that up with your manager, wouldn't you? Except your manager is now an algorithm, right? And that algorithm lacks any human judgment, understanding, goodwill, or really the ability to change its mind.
10: Mr. Wei says that it is very difficult to appeal the decision that the DDF uh, (laughs) makes. He tried to appeal against the penalty and the algorithm just shut him down. He says there is no means to appeal really.
8: So in many cases they actually had the feeling that they were treated like robots. That led to what we label as dehumanization, right? So drivers did not have the opportunity to really talk to supervisor um, something that is quite normal in traditional work
2: environments. So what we learn from the research that Maraike Ola and Alex have done is that when management is automated, parts of their job become harder and more stressful. Again, our point here is
1: that cognitive automation is always partial because certain parts of work are just hard to
2: automate. And as a result, important things go missing, right? Such as human understanding or human judgment. Also, algorithmic decisions go mostly unexplained.
1: That's not to say it's all bad. Everyone we spoke to emphasised the many good things that gig work
4: offers. Like taking you to work in the morning. That's not to say that it's always problematic and that these workers think that it's a terrible job or anything, but it's really that there are certain aspects of this sort of dehumanised algorithmic management that have proven to be quite problematic to workers.
2: So this research into algorithmic management in geek work provides us with another example of how automation can make life harder for workers.
1: And this is really important because these days algorithmic management is making its way into many other places, including office work.
2: So we've had Kickstarter where the algorithm is now having all the fun. We've had junior lawyers who find it hard to learn their way into the profession. And no gig work where people fail to find favor with their algorithmic managers.
1: But we have one more story, which is a really interesting one. And contrary to what people who know Kai might think, it's not here because planes. <laughs>
2: but planes are so
1: cool. It's here because it's another counterintuitive one. Everyone knows about autopilots on
2: planes. But automation on planes goes far beyond that. And you'd think that this kind of automation makes life easier for pilots. But does it? <laughs> yeah, but does it?
11: Well, autopilots themselves are very simple. All it does is it is you put in a program of where you want it to be, and it just looks at the difference and applies that change. So let's say you wanted to hold an altitude. So all it does is it looks at, has a sensor that has what altitude you're at, and then it has a command that it can move the flight controls to try to adjust for that altitude. The autopilot is really a very, very simple device. It's not making any kind of decisions.
2: Okay. That was Shem.
11: Shem Malquist, I am an instructor professor at the Florida Institute of Technology, and I am also a Boeing
2: 777 captain. And Shem is also a safety researcher and accident investigator.
1: And also an aerobatics instructor with 32 years experience. And he's down in Melbourne. Up in Melbourne, actually, because it's Melbourne, Florida. Not our Melbourne, Victoria. Okay.
3: Aviation has been uh, dealing with a gradual introduction of automation for many decades, essentially since the introduction of jet aircraft, autopilots get more and more complex, and now they have multiple layers of automated systems that the pilot uses to fly an aircraft from A to B. And that was? So my name is Stuart Beveridge. I am an airline pilot. I currently fly internationally on the Boeing 747. I am also the Safety and Technical Director of the Australian Federation of Air Pilots.
1: And Stuart's also done aviation research in the field of human factors.
3: So pilots of airliners, our job largely involves managing these multiple layers of automation, and that's often all at once to achieve our goal. In a normal flight, a pilot will intervene and guide automation and automated systems on a regular basis. And this constitutes a significant portion of our workload and also of our skill set.
1: But today's planes are much more automated than just simple autopilots. And that can create surprises that pilots are not familiar with.
3: We've been seeing more problems with pilots in terms of a mismatch of understanding between what the automated system does and what the pilot intends or needs the aircraft to do.
2: Like in the case of the Air France flight from Rio to Paris that crashed in 2009.
3: The Air France 447 accident, where the flight crew were not able to ascertain the issue of the flight deck instrumentation and totally misdiagnosed the issue and essentially flew the aircraft into the ocean without intervening correctly. One key factor was a lack of understanding of what the aircraft was doing at the time.
2: This was a devastating crash, and there have been other accidents such as the two Boeing 737 MAXs that crashed in 2018 and 19, and also other less severe incidents.
11: Qantas has experienced several. There was the qf 72 flight with the A380, then there was also the Airbus A330. There was also Boeing 777 that went into an uncommanded climb up the west coast of Australia.
1: And at this point, most people would be thinking that it must be pilot error that is the cause of most accidents. Yeah, not true, though. Pilot error
2: is not the cause of most accidents. As Shen points out, it's more accurate to say that pilots sometimes find themselves in those situations that just overwhelm them.
11: Very simply, the pilots generally are just overwhelmed with more changes than they can manage. We're putting them in places where there's numerous variables and numerous things changing all at once that is outside anything that they've encountered or been trained for before.
2: So more automation may very well mean more of these overwhelming situations.
11: Automation has been involved at some level with pretty much all of them.
2: So what
1: automation does is to change what is required of pilots. I think it's changed
3: the nature of our job. It requires a deep understanding of an automated system's logic and what it will achieve with what kinds of inputs.
1: So really automation requires a lot more of pilots.
2: Yeah, because modern planes have lots more automation than just the autopilot. Pilots today don't actually control the plane directly, it's fly-by-wire. What they do now is actually mediated by automation, and that controls the engines, the flight controls, and it stabilizes the plane, for example, to make flying more comfortable for the passengers.
1: But what that means is that when something goes wrong, say a sensor is faulty, what happens might be completely unpredictable for the
2: pilots, right? Yeah, so the, the plane might suddenly pull up or down and pilots have no clue why this is happening. So even though the automated system might still react the way it's meant to, the way it's designed, now it's getting a faulty sensor input and things become very unpredictable.
1: So pilots will now need to understand much more about how the automation actually works.
11: The main thing is to provide the pilots with the information that they need to to put the airplane in a safe spot and give them the training so they can better understand how the systems are interacting. The way automation is designed today, pilots really need to understand, have a really good mental model of how it's working, the different modes that it goes through, different factors that will affect how it's going to behave. And that requires some extra training.
2: Even Captain Chesley Sullenberger. That is actual Captain Sully, not Tom Hanks in the movie. Even Captain Sully said in a recent interview with Shem that it requires much more training and experience, not less to fly highly automated planes. Again,
1: automation makes work harder.
3: Rather than look at reduced training requirements when introducing new automated systems, but actually more training requirements with automated systems.
2: So automation means pilots need more training. They need to train harder. Yeah, because on the one hand, pilots
1: like Stuart must have a mental model of both the aircraft and its primary systems. Pilots
3: do as you mentioned, need to understand how to fly the plane themselves.
1: But on the other hand, pilots like Stuart now also need to know how the flight automation works.
3: And then an ideal training program would train the pilot in understanding in all the levels of automation right up to the highest level of automation where the aircraft is essentially flying itself with pre-programmed guidance by the pilot.
1: But yet again, common sense prompts us to assume that with more automation, we would need to know or do less. And that belief is actually quite widespread.
3: I believe there is an implicit understanding, uh, not necessarily just in uh, companies, but I think in society in general, that increased automation requires less involvement from the human operator.
1: And that's often reflected in the way that pilots are being trained.
3: Training programs are constantly being squeezed, and often the level of understanding by the uh, pilot of the automation uh, has been uh, lacking, and I think that's been demonstrated in a number of uh, accidents in the recent couple of decades.
2: So again, we need to unlearn what we know about automation. Rather than assuming that automation needs less involvement from the pilots and less training, it actually needs more.
1: We've heard about all the different ways in which automation makes work harder or less enjoyable or more stressful even though common sense would tell us that automation would make our life easier because we would be automating away all the tedious or the hard bits. And while it might take away some jobs, at least the remaining work is
2: of higher quality. But cognitive automation is different, and so we must unlearn what we used to know about automation. And while we could easily end the episode here...
1: ...making Megan's life a bit easier... ...telling you to set aside common
2: sense, you might rightly ask, so what? Well, automation makes work harder. But it doesn't have to. There are things we can do about it once we've unlearned old
1: ideas. One thing we can do is not pit machines against humans, although
2: that would be fun, but look at work as a whole. <laughs> yeah, so that robots are not having all the fun, what we need is understanding what humans are doing.
11: Understanding what humans are doing and what they're not doing. What we're doing right now is we're designing systems and then forcing people to adapt to those systems.
2: That was Shem. Again, because in cognitive automation, robots are only doing part of the job, we need to design work systems that include both robots and humans.
1: And that means going beyond just thinking about automating tasks where we replace humans with robots.
5: The reason we did it at Kickstarter was that the team was under stress. (laughs) We built this as a function of, of them feeling stressed out by having too much work, but balancing what the actual stresses are, right? Too much work versus too little, certain type of quality versus other. But I actually think it, it belies like a more nuanced understanding
4: of labor. And like our colleague Alex points out, not designing humans out of the system. There needs to be some human intervention within these systems and workers need to have a point of contact to try and sort of at least escalate issues.
1: But that also means that humans have to understand what's going on, what the algorithm is doing.
2: And that's our second point.
3: You also need to design the automated system to keep the human operator in the loop uh, by providing information on key processes.
1: And that's the second
2: thing we can do, give people a better understanding of what's going on. Yeah, that's right, because then, with more transparency, you have less frustration and also more
4: productivity. Then workers could make more informed decisions about where, when, uh, and how they will work and for what periods of time. So I think that overcomes some of that information asymmetry uh, that currently exists.
2: And that was our colleague Alex Fein once again. And overcoming this information asymmetry is important in all industries.
3: You need systems that create transparency on what they do, and that also allows informed intervention. You still need the human ability to intervene, but you need, uh, the key word there is informed. The human needs to know what they're doing when they are intervening.
1: So humans need to know what the algorithm is doing, to be prepared to take over, to know how to
2: interact with it and interpret its decisions. And that is true really for any kind of automated system, whether it's a pilot flying a Boeing 737 MAX, an Uber driver making decisions about when to work, a bank manager giving out a loan to a small business, or a doctor making a diagnosis with an automated system. There's one more thing we
1: can do when automating cognitive work to make sure we don't end up worse off.
2: Redesigning roles. We need to recognize that working with algorithms requires new skills. And that means more and different training needs.
3: You have to counter that natural tendency with increased, as I said, increased training, increased understanding of the system, and increased information of the system on key processes as it operates.
2: So in those professions where automation disrupts established ways of learning on the job... or Career pathways... We need to deliberately rethink how people update their skills or create new kinds of learning experiences
1: in the end, I think, even though we're all techno-optimists, it does seem we have our work cut out for us with them algorithms and robots. <laughs> we do
9: <laughs> have a tendency to be techno-optimists and and you know, maybe a little bit more optimistic about where technology is taking us in society than we should be. I do think that, like even a techno-optimist has to pause and say that with the advent of new technology, at the very least kind of users, we're all gonna to have to grow up a little bit in our use of technology and understanding its implications for, for how we live.
2: And the first step is unlearning old ideas about automation so that we're prepared when robots come to make our work harder.
1: Next time on The Unlearned Project, why music is no longer just
2: for listening. But then what is it for? We'll hear from producers, artists, creators, and key figures in the industry and figure it out.
5: Yes, as to what I think is a really profound change in the role of music, because it's all about setting this mood and this vibe and many more people feel that they can be creative using music today than ever in history. I'm Willa Overman. I'm the global head of music at ByteDance and TikTok.
1: Oh yeah, and there's... There's a
5: great
4: Australian artist, Mask Wolf.
5: What up, it's your boy Mask Wolf. And uh, you might know me from my hit song, Astronaut in the Ocean.
1: This was The Unlearned Project. Our sound editor was Megan. That was good. Now do it better, Wedge. And this episode and additional nerdy stuff was written by Sandra Peter and Kai Rimm. We had help with bits and pieces from the entire SBI team. Kishi Pan has done everything China. She's also the only one of us who speaks Mandarin. If you're wondering about the music you're hearing right now, it's one of the Bach-Goldberg Variations, a public domain recording made possible via a Kickstarter project and used by us because it's beautiful and, more importantly, free. If you want to know a little more about the topics and research in our podcasts, or for a full nerd out, our show notes are available at spi.sydney.edu.au slash unlearn. The Unlearned Project is a production of Sydney Business Insights, an initiative of the University of Sydney Business School. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and WeChat. You can subscribe, like, or leave us a positive rating wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you have enjoyed this episode from our other series, The Unlearned Project. And we hope you subscribe to The Unlearned Project wherever you get your good podcasts.
2: Go. Do it. Do it now. And we will see you back here on The Future This Week. After our break. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was The Future
0: This Week, an initiative of the University of Sydney Business School. Sandra Peter is the director of Sydney Business Insights and Kai Rima is professor of information technology and organisation. Connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Flipboard and subscribe, like or leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any weird and wonderful topics for us to discuss, send them to sbi at sydney.edu.au.